Hey everybody, welcome again to another exciting episode of the Crowdsourced Politics News Roundup. I am the host and moderator of the Crowdsourced Politics Podcast, Cypher, and we have a bit of news to share with you all today, but the cast is going to be shorter than usual because I am still suffering from a little bit of jet lag from my trip to South Korea. Um, so yeah, don't expect this to be a two hour run. Um, the copy that I was able to put together today is a little bit shorter than usual. So, um, yeah, but we're going to go ahead and provide a lot of news, a lot of updates and, and the like. So let's go ahead and, well, before we get into it, actually, I just wanted to make a few announcements. First off is that we do other podcasts here for Crowdsource Politics and that First podcast is called Cypher State, and Cypher State is a foreign affairs and foreign policy focused podcast where we take people from across the political spectrum that have a particular focus on geopolitical issues and do some analysis and some history about something that is facing the geopolitical stage today. Uh, Tiberius D of uh, the Mask Off podcast is a regular occurring character on that show. So if you like what he has to say, you like what I have to say, go ahead and check that show out. You can get it wherever you get podcasts or our YouTube channel. And we'll be doing another one this month, maybe two this month, depending on scheduling. But yeah, we're going to be talking about some important stuff there. We also do a, another podcast called Praxis Run. And Praxis Run is a podcast focused on understanding what motivates people and how they do praxis or putting theory into action. Other, hence, Praxis Run. We try to do that in order to understand where people are coming from and also share knowledge from the crowd to help other people get politically engaged or put their theory into action. So you can find that again wherever you get your podcast or our YouTube channel. Um, we're looking for people to interview for those shows. So if you or someone you know is an activist, please let us know and we'll reach out to get them interviewed. Uh, we'll probably be interviewing um, people from Austin, local local to me, Austin, uh, in the coming months or so while after I get a reach out to them for that. Uh, and we're also going to be working on another project. Uh, a couple months ago, I attended a uh, Trump rally. And still, the news isn't really reporting on this too much. And it's something that I think needs to be needs to be discussed. And so I'll be doing um, some in-depth reporting about what I found at that Trump rally in terms of classes being offered and uh, how long they've been going on and how much they cost and what people might have to say about those classes, whether they gained actual knowledge from them or not. So be on the lookout for that. So then without further ado, let's go ahead and start the show. And we normally start with Ukraine, but to be honest with you, I've been completely out of the loop while I was on vacation. So I do not know exactly what's been going on in Ukraine with Ukraine other than the agreed prisoner swap, the uh, the the deal that Turkey reached with Russia and Ukraine to export grain to Middle Eastern countries specifically and NATO and the United States approving Sweden and to join nato um i believe it was also norway it was finland let me look that up really quick NATO. uh yeah so yeah finland and sweden to join nato so i don't really have much in the ways of of uh what you call it the um the the insights to these things just because i've only briefly looked at them 
Uh, but we're going to start today off with actually some breaking news over the last hour from the Alex Jones trial. So let's go ahead and flip over to the share screen here and listen to uh, to what Alex Jones has to say about uh, perhaps engaging in perjury. Let's zoom in on the little article up in the corner. Let's I'm going to walk over to this thing so we can kind of point out. I know it's a little hard to read. You might be able to read a little better on your screen. This is a zoom of, of Mr. Watson has sent you a screenshot from Infowars.com, correct? Appears <coughs> Yeah, and it has an article here, right? Yep. And it says, staged. Video shows hospital using dummies in ER for coronavirus footage. I believe so. Let's go to the first message from Mr. Watson. Mr. Watson says, this is a video of a medical student training to intubate. Makes us look ridiculous, suggesting this means COVID is fake. Sandy Hook all over again. <coughs> read that correctly? Yes. Go to the next message. <coughs> what did you tell Mr. Watson? I get it. Mr. Jones, it's true that this article, right now, live on Infowars.com, I pulled up, right? I've never seen this text message. I guess you guys got calls. My phone didn't save them. That's fine. Your phone didn't save the second one. I told you guys, I gave it to the, I gave it to the lawyers and said they drained the phone, they'd find that stuff. I don't know how my phone's... Gave it to the lawyers. They were supposed to find it. So that's what that's what testimony is? No, I searched it as well. I mean, so... I, I, you guys have all this stuff and you shouldn't give me anything. Mr. Jones, you know how an iPhone works, right? You've had iPhone text messaging for several years now. Yeah. What does it mean if the messages are in blue? Whose messages are those? Whose phone is this taken from? I don't know whose phone's taken from. I mean, I just, I turn the phone over and said, take stuff off. Can I have you look in the very bottom below the very bottom left corner? That's the phone number? Yes. So you did get my text messages. And it said you didn't. Nice trick. <laughs> yes, Mr. Johnson. Oh. Indeed. You didn't give this text message to me. You don't, you don't know where this came from. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years and when informed, did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protect it in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have a text message about saying you know that. Okay, so that's the bombshell that I wanted to show here. So what does this mean, right? Two days ago, this lawyer asked Alex Jones whether or not he had text messages talking about Sandy Hook and how it was he was lying about it, basically, right? Him and his crew were lying about it and how it made him look illegitimate but you know he had to get those dollar dollars right and uh switching back over here that is the look of realization that he knows he is fucked absolutely positively royally fucked and i say that because that lawyer just said in that comment that jones jones's lawyer appearingly to be as incompetent as anybody that would work for alex jones could possibly be Turned over two years worth of text messages to the plaintiff. And what does that mean? Well, it means that this, my friends, is going to January 6th committee as well. And that was revealed earlier today or yesterday, one of the two days, last two days, that Alex Jones's text messages are on their way to January 6th hearing because... As this lawyer had stated, it became 
pub basically public knowledge, public property after his lawyer turned it over to to him and didn't say that any of the communications were privileged as required by law. That is fucking hilarious. Okay, and it just shows the incompetence of the people that, that surround all these grifters. And they're all grifters. Every single one of them is a fucking grifter. And Jones, Jones specifically, had made up to $800,000 a month pushing COVID bullshit and blinking his supporters out of money through prepping courses and, I don't know, supplements or whatever else he the hell else he sells on his website. So it is incredibly easy to trick these people out of money. And if you don't have scruples, which is clear that Jones has no scruples, you can get rich quick. That's not an endorsement. That's an indictment. All right. I do not condone any of this. I just find it to be utterly hilarious that it's happening. Now, there's about six minutes left on this clip so let's go ahead and watch some more of this clip but again paused perfectly on that face that he realized he realized he is royally fucked i see i told you the truth this is your perry mason moment i gave them my phone and then mr jones you need to <laughs> it's a perry mason moment <laughs> answer the question no i, I didn't know this happened no i didn't know this but i mean i told you even the judge's face. Let's rewind this back a little bit. And then, Mr. Jones, you need to answer the question. No, I didn't know this happened. No, I didn't know this happened, but I mean... Look, even she's like, oh, this is... This is good. I told you, I gave him the phone over. Just, just and you said, you said, in your deposition, you searched your phone. You said, you pulled down the text, did the search function for Sandy Hook. That's what you said, Mr. Jones, correct? And I had several, several different phones with this number, but I did, yeah. Well, of course, I mean, that's why you got it. My lawyer sent it to you, but I'm hiding it. Okay. Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones, that's Just answer questions. There's no question. Mr. Bankston also only asked questions. Sure. Mr. Jones, in discovery, you were asked, do you have Sandy Hook text messages on your phone? You said no. Correct. You said that under oath. I mean, I was mistaken. I was mistaken. You, you got the messages right there. You know it right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. Yes, I do. I mean, I'm not a tech guy. I told you I gave in my testimony the phone to the lawyers before or whatever, and, and so you got my phone, but we didn't give it to you. No, Mr. Jones. One more time. Please remember, if you need to assert the Fifth Amendment, you can. You can do that. All right, so I'm not going to go beat this horse too dead. This dead, this horse too much, rather. Uh, but essentially what, we're, what we see happened here is that the lawyer is using this claim of perjury to help convince the jury to award his his client the damages right and that's exactly what happened so so that adds up to roughly 4.1 million dollars in direct damages does not include any punitive damages that the jury can still award the family the sandy hook family for the pain and suffering that they endured due to alex's jones's lies these are just direct damages okay so we actually did get the punitive damages for alex jones on friday after this was originally recorded and those damages equal to 45.2 
million. Now, that is what the jury awarded. And media outlets all across the political spectrum are saying this is like the hugest win for Sandy Hook and that he's going to have to pay all this money. There appears to be, in Texas law, a cap on punitive damages. And that cap and that cap is only two times the amount of economic damages directly received. So it appears to be, if I'm reading this correctly, and I believe that I am, that Alex Jones will actually only pay out a total of about $12 million. Now, that could still bankrupt him. At least that's what he's been saying the entire time, that even $2 million would bankrupt him and make his immediate venture no longer exist. But we'll see how true that actually is coming in the next couple of weeks or so, because it might he might appeal this verdict. And not only he appealed this verdict, but it appears that the plaintiff's lawyers, the Sandy Hook victim's lawyers, are also going to appeal the damage cap as there is disagreement on whether or not the damage cap itself is actually constitutional inside the state of Texas. So this is going to be going on for many more months now. So be sure to stay tuned to this program for updates as we get them. Now... I don't know what much else there is to say about this particular case here. Anybody that watches, watches this program or has been following Jones for any amount of time knows that he's complete and utter full of shit, right? Conspiracy theories abound with this man, and it's all kind of this, like, algamation of anti-establishment, pro-American first rhetoric surrounding anything that the government does that he doesn't like as part of this grand conspiracy narrative uh, just to keep him and people like him down. You and I know it's bullshit, but his fans thought it was real. Now, as stated, he had said that uh, the Sandy Hook shooting was 100% real, despite spending, what, three, four years, three years, three years, Sandy Hook? Uh, let me look that up real quick. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's been 10 years. Sandy Hook was in 2012. So for the last 10 years, saying that Sandy Hook was fake and it was all a staged crisis actor driven thing in order to take away guns from law abiding citizens in the United States. Because reasons, I don't know. It's just it's all paranoid bullshit, right? Since he's now admitted to it, as I said earlier, no one should be not even his most ardent fans should believe anything he has to say now especially after the court has ruled that he is liable for damages for these families. So yeah, I just wanted to start off the program with this little bit of kind of strangest news because I thought it was hilarious and telling about the kind of place that we are in American politics right now. Because while this is going on, people that support Trump and the big lie about how the, uh, the big lie the, the lie of the the idea that the election was stolen uh, are winning elections and pri well primary elections anyways in the Republican primaries and I don't have much in the way of analysis for what happened this past Tuesday with the most recent um, most recent Republican primaries but it seems that in places such as Arizona and uh, I believe Kansas Trump based Trump backed people have won. And even those that weren't backed by Trump still pushed forward this gr the big lie narrative. So yeah, that's what we're at in American politics. Jones being held accountable. Meanwhile, Republicans are still voting in people that are full of shit. 
and uh, just lies, lies, lies on top of more lies. And we'll talk about some more of those lies in a minute. But yeah, that's what we have here. So let's go ahead and continue on to uh, some U.S. politics, starting first up with the Inflation Reduction Act. So for those that may not know, it's starting to look like we may actually get some of the Build Back Better bill passed this year. Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer have reached a deal on passing the new version called the Inflation Reduction Act. The primary purpose of the bill is to tackle inflation by offsetting rising costs for medication and deficit reduction, hence the name. It accomplishes these goals through a combination of corporate tax increases, uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, and $300 billion dedicated to the national debt. Now, the concessions made to get Joe Manchin on board include roughly $300 billion in deficit reduction payments and tax incentives to coal companies to use carbon capture technology, as well as opening up more federal land for fossil fuel extraction. Now, as we've reported on this program before, Joe Manchin is a coal guy. He, him and his family make money off of coal, and he is kind of a Coke-backed kind of person uh, because he is an energy guy. He's a, he's a fossil fuels guy. That is where his family makes their bread and butter. He's also a little bit of corruption in there, but that's the primary story here with, with what he's doing. And it's been true his entire life. He owns a coal, he owns a coal mine, he owns a company that does that works as like a broker between coal companies and towns within Virginia. And he's been going on since I want to say 1983 or so uh, with him. And so it's been a long, long process. Now, while that is the case, the the and the fossil fuel concessions are bound to upset Green New Deal proponents and environmentalists. The bill also does include tax incentives to bring more green tech online for both cars and electric generation, both on the individual level with more tax incentives for solar panels on the homes and buying electrical vehicles that will that were set to expire being expanded to 10 years, as well as direct investments in those technologies. For Joe Manchin's part himself, he sees this as kind of an all the above energy strategy. And that's always been his position. His position is always been all of the above. Extract from the ground, use the money that you gain from the extraction to invest in future green tech and to buttress the United States uh, energy production. Now, this deal comes after the passage of the CHIPS Act, which is a bipartisan build at bill aimed at increasing manufacturing, uh, chip manufacturing in the United States. We're going to talk a little bit more about the CHIPS Act later in the program, but the reason we're bringing it up now is because Mitch McConnell had said that he would not advance the bipartisan bill as long as Democrats continue to try and pass any of the provisions of Build Back Better through budget reconciliation. Now, it was assumed that when Joe Manchin scuttled talks on the Build Back Better bill a few weeks ago, that it was dead in the water. With the agreement between him and Schumer, political analysts are now thinking that it was a masterful ploy to get both bills signed into law and to give Biden and Democrats much needed wins before the midterm elections. Manchin, for his part, went on Fox News to defend the bill. Let's turn over to that to watch a little bit about it. Oh, that to do is read the bill. Then it's part of the deal. It's part of the bill. All you have to do is read the bill, Harris, and you'll see. 
you're not going to be able to do any more offshore wind or offshore uh, or onshore uh, solar and wind unless we're absolutely doing more production with drilling and extraction. It's all part of a balanced approach. We need more energy today, so and we also need to invest in the energy for the future. This is a balanced approach that everyone's been talking about, but everyone's upset for whatever reason because they're afraid it's a political bill. This is not a Democrat bill. This is not a Republican bill. All right, this is not a green deal. This is a red, white, and blue deal, Harris. And everyone's having a hard time understanding that we can walk and chew gum and do the great thing together if we'll still start looking at our country Look, first. And now, uh, so that just from the horse's mouth, you can see that he sees this as a deal for America, a compromise bill, something that's good for everybody. going to fast forward this a little bit to not run afoul of picking up too much of what has been said on Fox News in order to avoid the algorithms on YouTube. But we're going to go ahead and sh uh, shift over to here. Here we go. And listen to this next part because it's also important. About Biden's position. Let's watch. He promised it wasn't going to make, going to raise taxes on anybody making less than $400,000 a year. So, so to, to state what is being said here, Joe Manchin has been, was just asked by the Fox correspondent whether or not this would increase taxes on the middle class. Joe Manchin says no. This is the press secretary also saying no, but we're going to go ahead and listen to it fully. But the Joint Committee on Taxation says that is not true. Well, that is incorrect. So the Joint Committee on Taxation, which you guys heralded as a, an effective body when you were selling that infrastructure package, is not to be trusted here. I said it is not correct because I will give you why it's not correct, because it is incomplete. We got to know the bottom line on taxes. Let I me mean, tell you the bottom line on that, Harris. You want to know the bottom line? The Joint Committee on Taxation? That opinion was only written by my friends on the Republican side. It was not let, let's let's reiterate that before he does it himself. So the part of the joint tax, whatever fucking thing it's called, Joint Committee on Taxation, that was released. It was Republicans trying to control the narrative by releasing their version, not the compromise version, not the both sides version of the analysis first in order to shape the narrative and be the first to get in people's ears. And... For people that know marketing, for people that know pretty much kind of like anything when it revolves around to how people's minds are made up, first impressions are everything. Full stop. Anybody that has gotten a new job knows this, that if you are like solid for like your first three, six months, whatever your company's like first 90 day review, six month, six month review, whatever it is, if you're solid during that. You can get away with a lot going forward because they you set up the expectation that no matter what happens, you will do what you say you're going to do, even if it takes a little bit longer later in the future. First impressions are everything. They're hard to shake off. They're hard for people to shake off. And that is what Republicans were trying to do here with this bill, with these 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 messaging campaigns that we're going to talk more about later. And Manchin is saying, mm -mm, wait, 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 this is bullshit. And this is why. So let's go ahead and turn back over to him. Done by the whole joint committee. So that is unfair, too. So let's be accurate what we're doing here. The bottom line is how in the world can you be raising taxes when all we're saying is the wealthiest uh, corporations in America 
55 of them pay zero to help this great country of ours, to defend ourselves. Well, how does this change? So, so Manchin's doing the right thing here as well. He is focusing on the, the fact that this is a great country. Everybody that benefits from this country should contribute to the country in, through some sort of taxes or, or what have you. And we can't have 55 companies that are benefiting so much, benefiting so much from what is able to accomplish because they are American companies from contributing back to America. And it's a message that's going to resonate with people in the Midwest, in the South. It's, it's one of those things that intuitively feels fair. It intuitively feels fair. It just means that it goes with people's already preconceived notions about what fairness is and the kind of things that are required to keep America great, basically, and to keep America going forward. So let's continue on with what he's saying now change that because that, that's that's minimum, part of the corporate 15%. structuring right? it's a minimum of 15 percent the tax rate was at 35 percent before 2017 right then it went to 21 percent mm -hmm. that was a tremendous savings but that's not good enough i guess all we're saying is at 15 percent minimum everyone in west virginia i know and most people around the country pay a 21 percent corporate or greater so that's that's what he's saying here and it's a really good way to approach this um this kind of this kind of thing from like the the liberal left side of the house is to focus on the fact that you have you have a tax code that's written in a certain way and you expect everybody to follow that tax code and you expect everybody to contribute right um in some form everybody every company right and if you have companies that are able to game the tax code through whatever means, it doesn't matter if it's legal or not, but game it through through whatever means, then it's going to come off as unfair. And if you're going to have a mom and pop shop that, or we'll, we'll say maybe not a mom and pop shop, maybe say we'll say a company that makes over five million in revenue, right? And they're paying on their profits 21, 25% on their profits, then why can't another company pay at least, you know, something? They're making so much more in a year. And that's where he's getting to. All right. So let's continue on, though. So now with Manchin seemingly on board, all eyes have turned towards Kirsten Cinema, the last holdout for the bill. Cinema has said for months that she would be against Democrats raising taxes, but back in October had voiced support for the corporate minimum tax that is included in this bill. What appears to be the biggest sticking point now is the inclusion of eliminating the carried interest loophole. Essentially, and this is bringing it down to its most essential element and, you know, as succinctly as possible. There's more to it than this, but this is what it basically says. Is that the way that this loophole works is that investment managers keep their commissions in the stock market for three years and then sell it. This turns their commissions income in for tax purposes into capital gains, which is taxed at 20% rather than the income rate of up to 37%. If one cares about fairness of the tax code, they should be 100% on board with closing this loophole. And it has been a target for closure for years. I think since like 2007 at the minimum, because it just is not fair. It's not not only is it not fair, it is also one of those situations where you are seeing one group of people benefit 
at the expense of others. Now, what we're seeing now, though, is a mad rush to lobby Simina to get on board or stay off the boat by the usual suspects. The Koch brothers, the Koch-backed and funded Americans for Prosperity, cough, rich people, has, has launched ads across social media. Let's watch one of those ads that is targeting cinema specifically. And let, let's not mistake this. These ads are all the same. They just changed out names. Mass-produced garbage. But you'll see why we're going to share it here. Washington wasted trillions of dollars. Inflation's at a 40-year high. Prices skyrocketed, hurting Americans. Now President Biden says they have a plan to fix it. A $739 billion tax hike that will rise prices and make American energy more expensive. Senator Cinema can stop it. Say no for Arizona. Now this 30 second ad, the reason I wanted to share it, right, is because it is an effective ad, okay? It's people think that any tax increase that you'll see is going to result in the consumers paying more for product at a one-to-one -one level. That's what most people think. Most people think that companies simply just pass down all costs to consumers and don't absorb any of it. We've seen from different studies about different ways that companies balance their books and increase profits that this is not true, but it feels true for most people. Uh, we can see this with the increase in there's one. This is like a this is a famous this is a famous one. Okay, so regardless of the year, it was it wasn't too long ago. Pickers, tomato pickers in Florida actually got businesses to agree to pay 10 cents more per like bushel of tomatoes, right? And that might not seem like a lot, but it meant the difference between having um, being paid like $10 an hour or something like that for picking tomatoes in Florida to like 15, 16, 17, $18 an hour per per work per hour during a, a typical workday. Out in the fields picking tomatoes you know the kind of job that you can't necessarily automate because of the squishiness of tomatoes and the ability to bruise them etc 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 right and among them was like taco bell uh i think it was mcdonald's and no it was burger king and, uh, taco bell burger king and there was like one other big big company i think it was walmart they all agreed to pay this rate and essentially raise the rate for tomatoes to picking tomatoes the increase of that did not result in every price is going up 10 cents across the board. I think the average price of like a taco at Taco Bell went up like a penny. Meanwhile, these people were paid a lot more money for their ability to for, for their 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 manual labor for their work. And the reason that this is the case is because economics of economies of scale and the just the amount of sales that a company can make can greatly diminish the cost to that company by making up for it in volume. And they can make up for it in other ways. They can, you know, sad to say, maybe cut labor, maybe cut, maybe decrease the amount of wage increases for, for labor or cut profits, stop buyback programs, etc. 
or go to their suppliers and be like, hey, you know, we're paying X amount of money for your goods to bring them here. Uh, we don't want to pay that anymore. We buy so much of you from you. You should give us a discount. And so there's different ways that a company can can make move around any increase and not necessarily pass it off to consumers. And that's what we saw with that that example. See the same thing with minimum wage. And the reason we see the same thing with minimum wage is because if people are making more money, there's more people available to buy your product. And if you're selling more product, even if it costs you more to make it, the fact that you're making it up for it on volume of sales means you don't necessarily have to raise prices. So these are all the kind of things that we see uh, that can contribute to the company's ability or not to raise, uh, to, to stand price increases. And that includes taxes because taxes on a company is after profit, right? You're not taxed on gross revenue. You're taxed on net profit, okay? Net profit. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to pass it all over to consumers. So that's one, one of the things we have to mention here. So yeah, I I don't believe everything that they tell you. I mean, even if you're pre, if you're inclined, predisposed to think that all tax increases are bad for whatever reason, you should at least be for a fairer tax code, which is what this attempts to do. And you should be for paying for things that people need. And in this regard, we're talking about helping to pay down the deficit, which a lot of conservatives are supposedly for, in lowering prescription drug prices for everybody through Medicare being able to negotiate drug prices. And I say everybody because the amount of leverage that Medicare has, because it, you know, it covers everybody 65 and older, uh, allow, will bring down the prices for, for everybody because they're the, they're the biggest um, purchaser uh, or funder for, for medication. And the incentives to get um, the tax incentives to get more fuel to market will reduce the the cost of uh, energy because it increases the supply of energy. These are all good things. And that's why all these things should, to a degree, tamp down on inflation, not increase it. Now. In a marathon voting session that went late into the night on Saturday, August 6th, into the afternoon of August 7th, Democrats passed the budget reconciliation bill known as the Inflation Reduction Act, giving Democrats a much-needed legislative win going into the midterms. The vote passed purely on partisan lines, with Harris being the tie-breaking vote. Of note, two amendments were defeated during the process. First, Republicans tried to get Title 42 the Trump-era order that used coronavirus concerns to prevent migrants from entering the country while seeking asylum back into play. Analysts knew this vote would fail, but it puts the pressure on vulnerable Democrats in districts that are more anti-immigration. Secondly, Republicans successfully thwarted instituting an insulin price cap. The vote was 57 to 43, but because of archaic rules surrounding the Byrd rule of budget reconciliation, it still did not meet the threshold for passage. Also of note is that Kirsten Sinema, prior to the passage and vote of the bill, got the carried interest loophole removed from the bill and replaced with a 1% tax on stock buybacks. Now, if from a budget perspective, it is a wash. 
It looks to be that they will actually generate a little more in tax revenue than the carried interest loophole. But from a fairness perspective, it is a huge loss for progressives, which is partly why, among other things, Bernie Sanders came out and basically blasted the bill as not going far enough. I have said previously in in other segments and other places that this was not something that Bernie Sanders should have necessarily done, especially since we all knew he was going to vote for the bill, which he did. He's not entirely wrong, but there are times where you need to take a win and then push for more change, which during his speech prior to voting for the bill did not really come out as that way and more along the lines of like, well, this is the best that we can do, but y'all suck and the system is still rigged and the billionaires and trillionaires of the system is still going against everybody and liberal Democrats are part of the problem. So, yeah, I, I don't like that either. When we originally recorded this on Thursday, the bill had not yet passed and we're providing this bit of information to you in the podcast form of this program in order to give a fuller picture. If you want to see the live broadcast of this program, please be sure to tune into our YouTube or Twitch channels every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to roughly 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let's continue on now. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the Senate passed the Creating Helpful Incentives to produce semiconductors for America, or aka the CHIPS Act, on a vote of 64 to 33 in the Senate. Biden is expected to sign the bill into law on August 9th. Now, the CHIPS Act is a microchip and science research bill aimed at encouraging chip manufacturing and advanced R&D research in the United States. It accomplishes this through a $56 billion direct investment into microchip manufacturing, and over $200 billion investment into advanced scientific research in areas such as artificial intelligence, robotics, and quantum computing. This money comes with strings attached, of course, but ones that I'm sure conservatives can be on board with. Any company that takes CHIPS money will be required to forego expanding operations in countries of concern. (coughs) China. (coughs) China. (coughs) Yeah. Except for legacy chip manufacturing designed for the country of operations market. In other words, if you're in China or you're in another country and you're producing chips for legacy products within the home country for the home country market, you can expand operations over here. We get it. We don't want to give these countries the ability to steal directly our advanced microchip technology that we're helping to fund. Now, other strings that the Commerce Department has said will it will attach will be that money from the CHIPS Act will be allocated to companies who engage who engage or have engaged with direct investments such as workforce training and operational expansion in the United States rather than stock buyback programs. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, this is. Congress, this is D.C., coming back to the strategic investment table. We haven't had that going for years, decades. I think since 96, (laughs) it's been a long time since Congress has made any direct investments as a strategic goal. And by focusing in on these emerging technologies and focusing on key technologies that we need in order to ensure that the United States can have a competitive advantage By bringing those back to the table, we're seeing once again this kind of 
return of honestly common sense back to the United States in terms of strategic investments. So that's the biggest thing. The second thing is that it is directly aimed at a adversary, a rising adversary, China. And it goes with the kind of things that we're seeing from the White House, from liberals, from conservatives in regards to bolstering Taiwan and taking a somewhat more aggressive uh, stance towards China. And then you might wonder why I bring up Taiwan in this. Well, the reason I'm bringing up Taiwan here is because the reason, one of the big reasons that Taiwan is this strategic ally, partner, whatever you want to call them, is because of one, it's the government that split off from China. And so it's been a thorn in China side. Good to support people like that. Enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Kind of thing. Uh, but also because Taiwan is, it has, over the last 30 years, emerged as a chip manufacturing powerhouse. That's due to some investments from the United States and its own investments. And if Taiwan goes, goes back to China, right if the the two the the uh was it the two government thing like what happened with hong kong the the two 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 systems one government or whatever the hell it was called for taiwan if this or hong kong if that same thing happens in taiwan that makes everyone vulnerable to china's whims because they would effectively control at that point 80 90 percent of the chip manufacturing of the entire world and by having these kind of investments, which is the second time, this is the second bill directly at directly aimed at chip manufacturing over the last two years, second bill, by encouraging more home manufacturing of these chips, you're making that issue potentially less of one, but also ensuring that you ensuring that the United States and Taiwan remain key partners. And that is against what China's wishes are. So that's why you see people like this is why you see Republicans praising Nancy Pelosi, right? While lefties are saying, oh, no, Pelosi, bad. She's she's antagonizing China. We don't want to go to war with China. Not going to go to war with China over this. All right. That's come on. All right. Big, big countries don't go to war with each other. That's just not a thing that happens very much anymore. Right. It's too it's too much of a risk for both sides. Also, I mean, China can play wait it out the long game. They'll wait out everybody because they've strategically planned for fifty years, right? But it's not going to lead to lead lead to war. It's going to lead to more saber rattle saber saber rattling. But it's not going to lead to war with China because no one wants it. No one actually wants it. Okay. Um, but that's why the Republicans Republicans have actually praised Nancy Pelosi on her trip to Taiwan and why. You know the United why they're getting some Biden's receiving some praise due to his his policies here, and that's why also this bill passed despite um, misgivings by Republicans with some of what has been traditionally seen as corporate giveaways. So and, and it passed sixty you know sixty four thirty three. Um, so yeah, that's what we have here. All right, and finally talking about Congress this week. We have the PACT Act. Now, senators voted this week, voted yesterday, 
86 to 11 after Republicans agreed to lift their blockade on the popular bill, caving to pressure from more than 60 veteran groups and comedian Jon Stewart, who had railed against Republicans for days outside the Capitol. Now, the PACT Act is an act that um, is designed to provide money and medical assistance to veterans who were the victims of burn pit toxic exposure. Veteran groups, veterans, I shouldn't say veteran groups, veterans that are exposed to this, this, toxture, this toxic release of chemicals due to burn pits were like 90 times more likely to develop cancer. And they've been suffering for years. And this is one of those situations where Jon Stewart um, has been a staunch, 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 staunch ally of, uh, of veteran groups. And I had two videos up. Well, I'll get the other video up while this one's playing. But uh, that's why Jon Stewart has been there. Now, why did Republicans cave to pressure? And what was the reason for reneging on their commitment to pass the bill in the first place? Well, let's turn over to Jon Stewart explaining this because, one, he's the man behind this, right? He's probably the main, re- not the main reason, but one of the main reasons why this bill passed in the first place. Also, he's funny and he's succinct. Let's go ahead and turn over to him. Yeah, look, I, did, I didn't see John Stewart. He's actually quite funny. Look, he's talking about the PACT Act, which is a bill I support. It's a bill most senators support. Oh, hello. I'm John Stewart, apparently. Quite funny. And I'm awfully interested in what Theodore Cruz is about to say about the PACT Act. Go on. But what the dispute is about is the Democrats played a budgetary trick, which is they took $400 billion in, in discretionary spending, and they shifted it to mandatory. One thing, what Ted Cruz is describing is inaccurate, not true. Bullshit! This is no trick. Everything in the government is either mandatory or discretionary spending, depending on which bucket they feel like putting it in. The whole place is basically a fucking shell game. And he's pretending that this is some new thing that the Democrats pulled out, stuck into the bill, and snuck it past one Ted Cruz. Now I'm not a big city Harvard-educated lawyer, but I can read. It's always been mandatory spending so that the government can't just cut off their funding at any point. No trick, no gimmick, been there the whole fucking time. And so it's just part of the out-of-control spending from the left. They want to buy Hunter Biden cocaine! <laughs> a crack cocaine! And they want to purchase all your pronouns! Be careful. They're coming for your pronouns! It's nonsense. There is nothing in the bill that is not related to veteran spending. And don't take my word for it. An asshole on an iPhone. Read it. It's at congress.gov. This is for veterans who suffered health effects, from being exposed to burn pits and other toxins, that is it. What the Republicans got made clear uh, is if we leave that spending as discretionary, don't play the budgetary trick, the bill will pass with 80 or 90 votes. I don't know how many other ways to say this, but there was no budgetary trick and it was always mandatory. And when they voted in the Senate on June 16th, they actually got 84 votes. And you know who voted for that? 
Ted fucking Cruz and every other one of those Republicans that switched their votes. There was no. So to explain a little bit more about this, thank you, John Stewart, though, for the explanation there is that. Apparently. Apparently, the reason why they're playing this fuck fuck game is because they wanted to prevent Biden from getting another win. And they were mad that Biden and Schumer and Joe Manchin were talking about passing the fucking Inflation Reduction Act, parts of the Build Back Better, less than the two trillion that they wanted, three trillion that was originally wanted. Joe Manchin scratched that, but got it getting, you know, just under a trillion dollars, right? Just under a trillion. Um, and they were they're basically taking it out on veterans to make it look like Democrats don't care about veterans. Right. And John Stewart was not having any of it. Oh, in, in fact, in fact, he took on uh, what is his name? Uh, Jack Posick about it when he was trying to be a trolling fuckwit. We're going to go turn over to that, too, because it's important. Tim, this mother thinks that this bill is So you tell him, tell him that it's bullshit, that there's a four hundred million dollar pork You tell him. These people have suffered for fifteen years because you're a fucking troll. Troll. That's all that matters. That's the only thing they care about. You're not. That is all they care about. It's all about trolling. It's all about owning the libs. It's all about trying to wield power in their own interest. They don't give a fuck about veterans. They don't give a fuck about the deficit. They don't care about anything but right power. And in all enacting their cultural malaise on the rest of us. That's why fucking trolls like Jack here are lying to you all the time. Every day, making up some other bullshit to get you riled up, to pull the wool over your eyes, to blink you out of money for corporate donors, and to enact their political will against the rest of us, and to get their cultural bullshit passed. That's what they care about. They don't care about anything else. And if this doesn't prove it to you, I don't know what will. Let's watch some more. My question, my question is, what are you John, trying to do here? What? Why is John, I'm, I'm not even against you guys. Then, why the then fuck what are you doing? Then what are you posting? You're lying. You're a liar. You're a liar. You're a liar. You haven't been working on this thing. If you can't hear him, Jack is just calling him a name caller, calling him like these like useless fucking terms. This guy goes around calling people groomers all the fucking time. He needs to shut the fuck up. For years, I've been on the hill with the Republicans and with the Democrats. I don't give a fuck. You See, these veterans aren't having it, man. They're not having it whatsoever. You're the one calling. Have I called you names since we came yes. here today? What did no, I call you? You called me names online and you've done all this what stuff. What have I called? And you all called you me do names is today. What have I all called you? you and you are not So yeah, I just wanted to expose that bit because I thought it's important. Not only is it important, but it shows the kind of people these people actually are. 
right? But we need to continue on with some more news roundup stuff. Now, but as I said with the PACT Act, this seemed to have been a ploy to try to get people mad at Democrats for bullshit, just lying bullshit. Because, oh, they were for it before. Why are they against it now? Must be because Democrats did something. No, it's just because they're fucking liars and they knew you would believe it. Okay? That's all this was. That's all this ever was. And that's why it passed 86 to 11 again with the same 11 Republicans being against it because of budget reasons because they don't like spending money on fucking anything. That's it. But we need to continue on. And now we're going to talk about the state of abortion access in the United States because there's been some changes and there will continue to be changes in the coming months. So first up, we're going to talk a little bit about some executive order action taken by the Biden administration. So on Wednesday, Biden assigned an executive order that directed the Health and Human Services to consider actions guaranteeing women traveling across state lines seeking abortion to have access to health care services, including through Medicaid. According to a senior administration official, the executive order will allow states to seek a Medicaid 111 or 1115 waiver to provide services to residents from other states and insist in covering, quote, certain cost. The executive order also directs HHS to expand research efforts on maternal health data to, quote, accurately measure the impact that diminishing access to reproductive health care services has on women's health, the official said on Tuesday. Now, uh, pressed Wednesday on how the executive order avoids running afoul of the Hyde Amendment, which, per the, for those who may not know, the Hyde Amendment prevents the use of federal funds to perform abortions. White House Press Secretary Carney Jean-Pierre said that the Department of Health and Human Services will, quote, come up with the details on the specifics on how they're going to work with states to provide care via Medicaid waivers. Quote, so, as you know, Medicare waivers, Medicare, Medicaid, rather, sorry, let me start over, quote, so as you know, Medicaid provides comprehensive health care to women with low incomes. This care includes family planning services such as contraceptives, non-emergency medical transportation, and support services like targeted case management, which allows health care providers to help patients coordinate their care, John pierre told CNN's MJ Lee. And continuing on, it also includes abortion care in certain circumstances, as accepted by the Hyde Amendment, which is rape, incest, and life of the mother. Now, the executive order, Jean-Pierre said, um, said, told Lee, quote, will cover care that is otherwise part of Medicaid, including non-emergency medical travel and other healthcare-related services. She added, quote, the Hyde Amendment is the law, and we're going to follow that law. Now, Wednesday's executive order is the second one signed by Biden in the wake of the September uh, court decisions overturning Roe v. Wade. Last month, Biden signed an order that he said would help safeguard access to abortion care and contraceptives, protect patient privacy, and establish an uh, interagency tax force to use, quote, every federal tool available to protect access to reproductive health care. And uh, thanks for the follow. Who followed? Uh, Blood Doll. Appreciate it. Now, in Kansas, Roughly 59% of Kansas, uh, Kansas residents voted against the value them both amendment. The amendment now would have, would have added to the state's constitution that a right to abortion is not protected by the state 
not protected, and that the state legislature would have discretion over laws regulating or eliminating access to abortion. This is in contrast to what the state's political makeup on the legislative level would lead people to believe. The state legislature is overwhelmingly Republican. But that is what happens when you have gerrymandering at the level that we have in the United States. So while 59% of people voted against changing this, the law's language, the state, the state Republicans are uh, state re- Republicans still control the state legislature. And it's important to point that out. Not only is it important to point that out, but it shows that this might be a instance, like we've said in the program before, of the dog catching the car. Because the goal of this change of language was not to eliminate the right to abortion, but to continue to use the right of abortion as an issue to drive conservatives to the polls. Now, they could have easily passed in the legislature, given its political makeup, a constitutional, not passing constitutional amendment, bringing a constitutional amendment to the voters to outright ban abortion. But they didn't. Because they wanted the state legislature, they wanted that issue to be brought to the state legislature in order to drum up support for Republicans going into the midterm. With this rejection of that language, we see that not only do people in Kansas overwhelmingly reject that notion, but it's also a good indicator that this might be an issue that Democrats can win on even when Republicans are playing fuck-fuck games with language like they did in Kansas. That's what we saw in Kansas. Now, moving on to abortion in Florida, let's start with a quote from DeSantis. So, quote, To take a position that you have veto powers over the laws of the state is untenable. This is the position Ron DeSantis took when he effectively fired Tampa's duly elected prosecutor, Andrew Warren. How is this possible? Well, under Florida law, a a governor can remove, quote, any county officer for malfeasance, misfeasance, neglect of duty, drunkenness, incompetence, permanent inability to perform official duties, or commissions of a felony. The Florida state, the Florida Senate, rather, has the power to reinstate a suspended official or remove that person from office. Now, why was Warren fired? Well, it seems that he was fired due to the commitment not to go after people who seek and, abor- uh, seek and provide abortions or on doctors that provide gender-affirming care to transgender people. Again, it is cultural warrior bullshit. Essentially, what Warren has, has done is that he has been against Ron DeSantis uh, He's been against Ron DeSantis for these cultural things. He was actually kind of a moderate prosecutor, did some did some uh, prosecutorial reform, but also, you know, helped uh, also was supported by the sheriffs and the police unions up until fairly recently. In fact, it's kind of odd. Um, some of the people that supported him got pardons from Trump and now are against him. Makes you think. But. What it essentially is doing is that Ron DeSantis is saying that prosecutorial discretion and the ability to, for voters to check the powers of their legislatures and their governors through the election of DAs is not going to be tolerated. 
Now, there's some give and take with that. Um, I personally think prosecutorial discretion is a good thing, but I can understand why people would be against it on principle. But it doesn't seem like Ron DeSantis is against it on principle. He's just against it because it is going, in this case, it would work against him and his proclivities, or against his, his desires, rather. Not proclivities, desires. And why do I bring that up? Well, I think it is an open secret that Ron DeSantis is actually running for president and has been for the last two years, basically. Once Trump was voted out of office, Ron DeSantis has increased his national appeal to the Trumpian base and showing his conservative bona fides through actions such as this. We talked about him on this program extensively. We're going to continue to talk about him because it is, in our opinion, what he is doing. He's running for president. And that is why he's doing things like this. And what this kind of shows you is the kind of president he is likely to be if he were to actually win the presidency. He will use the tools of his office to make to give himself political advantages and to ensure that his political will is enacted, even if that is contrary to what voters might want in a particular location, this being Tampa, or playing around the edges of the gray edges of morality and legal legality in order to get what he wants. And that is what, to me, this shows here. It shows us that DeSantis is willing to wield power for his political ends and his desires. And that is not good if you're at all liberally inclined. Because being a liberal isn't just about holding certain values. It's about defending norms. It's about defending democracy. It's about defending rule of law. And when you have things such as this come up, it's very concerning. That's what I wanted to say about Ron DeSantis. All right. Now, hey, everybody. So glad for you to join us. If this is the first time you've joined us on the News Roundup, welcome. We typically do the News Roundup every Thursday live on Twitch or YouTube from roughly 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to roughly 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, covering the news that was of the past week with the kind of analysis only the crowd can provide. If you have news with that, if you have news you want to see us cover, here is how you can get it to us. First, you can hit me up on Twitter at CrowdsourcedPoll, where I like to post memes and anything else I can fit into 155 characters or less. Um, you can also join us on our Discord. Discord is where we're trying to build up a better, more robust community. We want to have contests and the like on Discord. And so, yeah, that's where we're trying to push people to. And if you do Facebook, we also run a Facebook group at Facebook slash groups slash Tribune Commons. Uh, where we have our community of roughly 600 people or so and a wider based community through other groups that we interact with and try to get some of the news programs, the news segments that you're seeing here, where we get some of the ideas for that. So if those are things that you'd like to do, hey, reach out to us. We'd be glad to have you either on the show to help talk about an issue that's plaguing today or provide us with information that you would like to hear 
me cover and give here my analysis of. So yeah, thank you. Now, like I said at the top of the news program, we're going to be cutting it short today because one, I'm still experiencing a little bit of jet lag. Two, I've been starting over on the news because I did not really pay attention to it while I was vacationing for all of basically all of last month in South Korea. Had a great time in South Korea. Good to be home. Um, but it did give me a little bit of uh, not much leeway in trying to bring this to you. So that's what we're cutting short today. So with that, we're going to wrap up with some talk about the U.S. economy. And the reason we're going to wrap up with the talk about the U.S. economy is because there's been a lot of talk all across social media. We're talking TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, like everybody is talking about the economy. It's the first thing on most people's minds. And there's a lot of mixed signals to say, all right? There's a lot of discussion chatter about whether or not we're in a recession, if that matters, how bad is that recession, etc. And the reason for that, as I just stated, is because the signals that we're getting from everywhere, it's a mixed bag. So we're going to talk about that. So let's go ahead and get into it. Now, the, the economy continues to give mixed signals with signs of robust job strength, declining demand, and inflation. These signals are creating a muddled, a muddled picture of whether U.S. or even the world economy is in a state of recession or not. Across social media, we've seen arguments that the United States has entered a recession due to two consecutive quarters of declining GDP, a rule of thumb, but not necessarily the rule. So we're going to talk about these signals and what they can mean. First up on that, we'll be looking at the July 2022 Service Industry for Supply Management Report on Businesses. Quoting from the, from the person that wrote the report, quote, the price index decreased for the third consecutive month in July, down 7.8 percentage points to 72.3%. Services business, service businesses continue to struggle to replenish inventories as inventories index contracted for the second consecutive month. The reading of 45%, the reading of 45% is down 2.5 percentage points from June's figure of 47.25. The Inventory Sentiment Index, 50.1%, 50 up 3.9 percentage points from June's reading of 46.2%, moved into expansion territory in July after four consecutive months of contraction. What does, to basically put that in non-economic lingo, essentially we're seeing inventories begin to rebound and supplies, uh, inventory um, supplies replenish, which means that we're seeing the supply crunch that we experienced over the last year to be coming back into alignment to meet where supply and demand are more in line. However, um, it's not it's not all rosy. It's not all peaches and cream because the because companies are still having trouble replenishing their supplies. And that's why we saw that the um, that's why we saw the, the, the supply inventory shrink a little bit and continue to struggle. Continuing, the report continues, though. According to the services PMI, 13 industries reported growth. The composite index indicated growth for 26 consecutive months after a two-month contraction in April and May of 2020. Growth continues at a faster rate for the service sector, which has expanded for all but two of the last 150 months. The slight increase in services sector growth was due to an increase in business activity and new orders. The employment index uh, contracted for the second consecutive month, though, 
and the backlog of orders index decreased 2.2 percentage points to 58.3%. Availability issues with overland trucking, a restricted labor pool, and various material shortages and inflation continue to be an impediment for the service sector. Now, to put that into non-economic lingo speak again, essentially what we're seeing here is that we're seeing that while while new orders are coming in, while businesses are continuing to grow, they're hitting headwinds in terms of labor pool, uh, labor pool shortages, which means that there's too many jobs and not enough people to fill them. Uh, we're still seeing material shortages in various sectors and um, and inflation being eating away at people's ability to buy different goods and services as people move from discretionary spending to mandatory spending that's a bad way to say it as people move from buying things and experiences to necessities as necessities take up more of their budget so with all that said though according to this particular report this report being the service institute for supply management report on businesses the economy is still doing well there's still growth job reports are robust and companies are starting to replenish inventories these are all good signs but another report the s&p global u.s services purchasing managers index report paints nearly the opposite picture now according to this report while new orders for goods and services returned to a growth outlook, overall business activity declined from June to July. According to Chris Williams, the chief business economist at SP and Global Market Intelligence, quote, tightening financial conditions mean that financial services sector is leading the downturn with a further steep step, uh, steep rise, sorry, with a further steep rise in interest rates from the uh, from the Fed since the survey data were collected likely to intensify the downturn. Higher interest rates alongside the ongoing surge in inflation have meanwhile spilled over to the consumer sector, meaning the surge in household spending on goods and activities such as travel, tourism, hospitality, and recreation seem to, seen in the spring has now moved into reverse as household spending is diverted to essentials. Although employment continued to raise in July, the rate of job creation has also slowed sharply since the spring has also slowed sharply since the spring and looks set to weaken further in the coming months as firms cut operating capacity in line with weakening demand. The flip side of this deterioration in demand, though, is a welcome alleviation of price pressure, which hint at peaking of inflation. So what does that mean? Well, that means that essentially as I stated earlier, when, as people move some discretionary spending uh, on like things and goods and services to necessary spending, such as fuel prices, uh, fuel, food, etc., you're going to see uh, weakening demand lead to weakening, uh, weakening, uh, weakening market and potentially also a decline in inflation. So bolstering the S&P global the S&P Global aforementioned report, consumer confidence has also fallen for the third straight month. However, consumer confidence is well above historic levels, that of well above the levels seen during, during a recession historically. With that said, the consumer's outlook for the next six months held steady, but at levels that suggest a recession fears remain persistent. In fact, 
about 43% of respondents say they think there's a greater than 50% chance that the U.S. will experience a recession in the next 12 months, while just 13% of respondents said that as of April. But while this may be the case, this week's job reports look also to offer mixed signals. Jobless claims slightly increased this week to a seasonally adjusted average of 260,000, but layoffs for the first half of the year is down 31.3% from the same period last year and the lowest since the January to July time span of since 1993. Now, job cuts this year have been concentrated in the automotive, technology, and financial sectors. Semiconductor shortages have hampered the auto industry, while layoffs in technology and financial sector reflect cooling demand because of higher interest rates. Now, furthermore, it is expected while the job market may cool with some, uh, cool some with the tomorrow's jobs report, there will still be more job openings than people looking for work. In June, the rate was 1.8 job openings for every person seeking work. Now. There's other, there's other mixed signals here as well. We see a further increase, uh, decrease in gasoline prices, and gasoline prices have fallen for the seventh straight week, uh, with the average dropping from roughly $4.70 $4. national average to roughly $4.10 on national average. And some states, such as my state in, of, of Texas, have seen gas prices in some areas drop below $3.50 a gallon. Now, this could be a result of more supply coming on, or it could be a result of further reduction in demand. And while it might feel good, people are still worried about a recession, and so that is impacting consumer confidence. And with all that, the Fed is continuing to raise interest rates, with just re- this week raising another 0.75 basis points from pulling it in from... Uh, from 1.75 to, or you know, roughly 1.75 percent to 2.25 to 2.50 percentage for interest rates. U.S. oil prices have also fallen below $90 a barrel for the first time since February. But stocks on all this news have actually gone up because they actually, because stock market analysts, analysts, and investors are actually seeing this as a good measure in order to tackle inflation as well as seeing the further jobs reports that we're seeing and the job growth that we're seeing as positive signs that the economy is actually pretty stable. So we're going to turn over now to a, uh, a, a article from the Washington Post that will compare the data that we see from all the data that we see from the last six months to other historic recessions. So let's talk about that a little bit here. So last week's report on economic output recharged speculation about whether the U.S. economy is actually in a recession. Gross domestic product shrank for the second quarter in a row, a common but not official definition of a recession. GDP isn't the only measure that matters, especially in a tangled mess of pandemic economy. The National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, has the final say on whether a period of economic decline is a recession, a determination that can actually lag for months. The NBER economists consult a wide range of indicators that suggest this year's economy stands on sturdier ground than in recent recessions. We're going to go ahead and pull up this chart here. 
Okay. Now, what you can see on the screen here, what you can see on the screen here, is you can see this year highlighted in yellow with past recessions when it comes to various different measures of what a recession means. So from left, from left to right, up to bottom, we see non-farm employees, which means any employee, any person working in a non-farm related sector to have really declined way more last six months rate of, of a recession, six months before downturn, six months downturn, first six months, way more than what we're seeing right now. Um, in fact, some of it oftentimes, uh, as you can see with these lines here, oftentimes it actually goes negative. Okay. Like it lowers below 0%, which means that we've had major job losses rather than seeing job growth. Employment levels, same thing. Uh, industrial production, those just fall off a fucking cliff. Like in most recessions, we're not seeing that, at least not yet, um, with the recession that we might be in. Uh, same thing with gross domestic income. You can see those, like you see a, a you know surge and then a sharp decrease. Not seeing that yet higher either. Uh, personal consumption, again, can fall off a cliff, go negative. Same thing with gross domestic product personal incomes and manufacturing just just craters man craters in most recessions just absolutely falls off a cliff and manufacturing is the one kind of here that actually looks to be following the general trend of the la of of previous recessions uh personal income a little bit there as well at least compared to like one or two other recessions but not they don't seem to be following the same historic lines, the same historic outlook that we get in most recessions. And that is important to point out because if we are in a recession, then the most that you could say as of right now is that we're in a very mild one. And I've been saying this for forever, like not just the last three weeks, not just when, you know, when Biden's been, been president, not just when Democrats are, are in power. I've been saying this forever. Okay. A recession that doesn't that isn't accompanied by jobs job losses of in multiple percentage points isn't worthy of the name of a recession. If you don't have negative, if you don't, if it doesn't come with negative growth, where you actually have a contraction in the economy, if you still have growth in the economy, you don't have a recession that's worthy of being called one. You don't have this broad category of people that are just being absolutely hammered by what's going on. You have certain sectors, maybe they're experiencing a correction, or maybe the entire economy itself is experiencing a minor correction, but you're not seeing this massive wave of layoffs, massive wave of foreclosures, um, maybe not even massive, but you know, don't see a bunch of foreclosures. You don't see people completely losing their shirts in the stock market. You see, you see a, a decline in growth. You see a decline in GDP, but you don't necessarily see it as broad across the economy, broadly across all income sectors as what most people consider a recession to be. This isn't to say that it doesn't suck. It, just, it is just to say that even though people might feel as though we're in this terrible, terrible state, and we're in a pretty bad state, I don't want to diminish the fact that inflation sucks ass and it's fucking everybody right now. Okay. 
don't don't get it twisted. I'm not here to diminish the pain that people are feeling in their pocketbooks, their ability to provide for themselves and their children and their families. Don't mean to if I'm coming off that way, I'm sorry. It is not intended. OK, it sucks, but it doesn't mean it's a recession was what I'm saying. So while and also when prices are soaring. That's not necessarily a bad indicator of the economy either. OK. When an economy is when 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 prices are increasing, when the economy is running hot, when labor is able to get a bit more than usual because they have some leverage, you tend to see some increases in prices. Not the all the increases in prices right now, mind you, are because of that. OK, some of it is because of stimulus spending. Some of it, most of it is because of supply, but some of it is because of stimulus spending. Some of it is because of of things that are negative and the government has some control over and etc. Okay. But it does mean that when you do have an economy that is going decently well overall, where labor is able to rest, wrestle some concessions out of capital, you're going to see some price increases and those price increases are going to suck, but it doesn't mean that the economy is in a ditch. Does that make sense? I hope I'm, I'm making sense here. I feel like I'm, I'm, I am, but I'm not getting direct feedback right now, so I'm just hoping that it comes off as I intend it to. So yeah, like it. That's why it's a mixed bag. I don't like calling what we're experiencing right now a recession for that reason, and for the other reasons that it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everybody is worried about a recession coming. If everybody is worried about the next six months to a year, people are that have the ability to spend more are going to spend less. And that can cause an economic contraction on its own, even if everything else is going fine, right? Mostly fine. Even, you know, despite inflation, people are still able to spend money, still going out and everything like that. Consumer spending still seems pretty robust. But if people start pulling back, that can have a cascading effect. Just like as if prices increase, people spend more money because they're worried about prices increases and it can cause this inflation death spiral. You get the same thing with fears of a recession where people start worrying about whether or not we're in a recession and worried that we might go into recession in you know in the coming months. So they spend less and that less spending causes further reduction in spending, further reduction in job growth, and it keeps causing this vicious vicious cycle a lot of economics on the macro level is group psychology it just is it's vibes and i don't mean i don't even say that tongue-in-cheek it is true behavioral economist behavioral economics is true a lot of the things that we experience on the social level are you know group psychology group sociology self-fulfilling prophecies etc and if people feel that things are getting worse and they react as if they're getting worse, even if they're not getting worse, they get worse. So I don't like this hype, this hyping that the media is doing all media left, right, center, doesn't matter. All media is saying we're in a recession. We're approaching a recession. We're going to a recession. It's going to impact how people react and it can create a recession. Even if it's not, we're not in one. That's the primary reason that, that's one of the reasons, probably the primary reason I am against t- 
talk, not talking about the fact that things are getting slightly worse, but I'm against to say, I guess, overhyping it, I guess, to say over overstating what is actually happening, because, again, it creates it can create this situation. Now, continuing on with this article, and this goes to buttress what I'm saying. Americans feel bad about the economy, and there's no doubt that soaring prices and everyday essentials are making it harder to get by. But a recession isn't a measure of how hard it is to make ends meet. It is defined by the NBER as a downturn that is deep, deep, which we're not in right now, right? Diffused and lasts for a few months. Diffused meaning across the entire economy and lasts, lasts a few months, which, you know, typically speaking means two quarters, right? But there's no exact formula for recession. For instance, two months in early 2020 were declared a recession despite being so brief because the economy declined from the pandemic was so drastic and far re uh, reaching. Two months rather than two quarters. We called it a recession because, again, the, the COVID hit, everything just fell off a cliff. All right. Everything went poof, down. So, of course, it's a recession, right? Even if it's short lived. So, quote, every recession is unhappy in its own way, say David Wilcox, senior economist for the, with the Pearson Institute for International Economics, Economics and Bloomberg Economics. It's important for the business cycle. Uh, it is important for the business cycle dating committee to shift through the indicators and make their decision in a flexible way. We took a look at where the indicators used by the decision makers at the NBER stand today, which is what I showed you, compared with recessions over the last 50 years. These years... This year's economy is far from bulletproof, but is strikingly different from the hard times of the past. Uh, gross domestic product measures the country's economic growth by tallying up the value of all goods and services. It has declined in the past two quarters, but GDP often has big revisions after its initial release, averaging a full percentage point of changes between the first estimate and its final revision, revision months later. The NBER also takes into account GDP's less prominent cousin, gross domestic income, which measures the same thing, economic growth, from a different angle. How much money was earned by making those goods and, service, uh, goods and providing those services? In practice, the measures aren't quite equal. Well, this year, they're pointing in opposite directions. GDP says the economy is shrinking, while GDI says it's growing. And GDI is inflation-adjusted, which means that it is normalized to whatever the current normalized to one one dollar in 1970 is equal to one dollar in you know 2022 2022 okay like it's it's equalized it's normalized to to one so you actually get a proper look about how it's going now in practice uh averaging the gdp and gd and gdi together as the nerb does nber does suggests that the economy has largely stayed the same in the first three months of the year. Gross domestic income for the second quarter has yet to be reported. Employment shows a much stronger picture, especially when compared with previous recessions. The NBER looks at two different measures for employment, payrolls reported by businesses and direct household surveys. Both are big contrast with the jobs losses seen in the first six months of most previous recessions. The, there are signs that last year's uh, phrenic labor market is easing. Jobs openings dip slightly in June after months of record highs, and tech companies are slowing their growth. But unemployment remains at a pandemic low. 
employment is usually a counter uh employment is usually a contemporaneous indicator wilcox said if the overall economy was contracting you'd see it in employment and we're just not seeing it as i stated so these this is why all these signals are mixed right we're seeing some negative signs we're seeing a lot of positive signs a lot of negative signs and it's causing this muddled mess that is indicative of not having a clear picture but it's not quite indicative of being in a recession. So again, a recession that has that doesn't have broadly deep, broad reduction in everything, especially employment, isn't worth worthy of the name of a recession. And that is what I want to leave you here with. So everybody, with that, I am sad to say that we are actually out of time. We know you liked what you heard because you stayed up stayed with us until the end so go ahead and smash that like button for the algorithms follow us on youtube and twitch it really does help us out if you have anything you want to see on the news roundup please go ahead and reach out to us over at crowdsourced poll on twitter where you can uh where i share memes anything else feel like and you can also join the facebook group facebook slash group slash tribune comments and as we say Every time at CrowdSource Politics, keep your head up through the political storm.